When an animal is injured and hurting, everyone knows that you should approach with caution. General practice is tired and hurting. We're like a racehorse who's never going to win another race, but don't send us to the glue factory just yet. If you can put us in a field, we will pull a plough all day long. We might throw in a few pony rides at the weekend. We might even digest and respond to millions upon millions of e-consults. I'll be honest, I have no idea where I was really going with this analogy. But the clear hot topic in general practice over the last two weeks has not been anything to do with research, not even anything to do specifically with COVID per se, but it's all been to do with that letter from NHS England and the statement that we need to start seeing patients face to face and the insinuation that we have not been working hard enough. Why do they want to contribute to this rhetoric? Why do they want to ape the cries in the right-wing media. I, like many of you, have always wondered if there's some kind of overarching conspiracy against general practice and perhaps the NHS as a whole. But it's actually Wednesday today, not my usual Friday podcast, and I'm already behind the schedule I set myself today because I've spent the last hour watching Dominic Cummings explain what on earth the government was doing at the start of the pandemic. And if what he says is true, then there is no grand conspiracy. It's just the country's run by halfwits. And most of the time, they have absolutely no idea what's going on and absolutely no idea where they're going. However, given the fact that the heads of primary care of NHS England do have their fingers deeply ingrained in general practice, you would have thought they may have known to approach this in a slightly different fashion. Because the truth is, some of what they're saying is very legitimate. Most of us do have concerns about remote consulting and total triage systems. Most of us are worried that those who need our help the most are also the ones who are least able to access our services at the moment. Most of us have realised that telephone consulting is not faster than face-to-face -face consulting. Most of us have realised that e-consults is a particular poisoned chalice giving open access to GP practices for those who are the most tech-savvy. But they should have also known a profession which is tired and angry, like a wounded animal, needs to be approached with caution, or it will bite back. And there are lots of teeth that wanted a piece of this action. The BMA, LMCs, the RCGP, even NHS England in itself, turning around and saying that we are not contractually obliged to do anything that this statement had suggested. And everyone working in a practice understands that the biggest challenge we face for getting back to face-to-face -to -face appointments is the simple fact that you can't socially distance a waiting room full of people running our traditional clinics. Three GPs running an hour behind, you've got a dozen people sat in a waiting room all crammed in, just staring at each other, desperately trying to hold in that cough in case they get thrown on a fire by an angry mob. So thank you, NHS England, but no thanks. And before you send out your next letter, maybe just ask around a little bit to see how it's going to read. It's Wednesday, the 26th of May, and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Welcome everyone, welcome back to the Hot Topics podcast, Neil Tucker here from MB Medical. And I feel like maybe that was some cathartic release for me, I needed to get that out. Now I can breathe a little bit and be a bit more positive and upbeat about things. 
Thank you to everyone who got in touch last week. It was really nice to hear from you all. And the common theme in, in all of that was that, yes, everyone does feel like they're struggling, but also there is positivity there. And the positivity almost inevitably is down to our colleagues, the people that we work with and the teams that we work within. And at that point where we're all feeling dumped on, take heart in the fact that you are surrounded by people like you who are decent people trying to do the best they can in a difficult situation and doing a good job of it. We're already almost five minutes in. I've clearly talked too much already, so I need to speed up. So today we are going to talk about COVID research and lots of the, lots of the different journals have been publishing, publishing data on the relative efficacies of different vaccines on different strains in different countries. I feel a little bit like they're late to the party because a lot of this has been put out by governments and press releases already, I think. But it does cement the data now that it's published and some of it is good news and some of it is not so good news. We'll also have a look at a new BMJ paper on long COVID, a new England Journal of Medicine paper on grommets versus medical therapy for a recurrent acutotitis media and then a Lancet paper on bariatric surgery and the benefits of that particularly in diabetics. So vaccine efficacy first. So we kick off with a Lancet paper. This was looking at the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in Israel and to cut a long story short it appears to be hugely effective as part of their vaccination campaign. So one week after the second dose and remember they were all being given their second dose at about three weeks, it found a vaccine efficacy of 95% against SARS-CoV-2 infection, 91% against asymptomatic infection, 97% against symptomatic infection, and 97% against hospitalisation. They showed a clear link between greater levels of vaccination and reductions in the level of infections. Now they also point out an important point and that's that 95% of people who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 had the B117 variant or the UK variant. So far so good but a note of caution has been raised in a preprint paper from Public Health England a few days ago and this was looking at the both the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccine efficacy after the first dose and then after the second dose in the UK, both against the um, that B117 UK or Kent variant, but also this B16172 variant, colloquially known as the Indian variant. So good news if you had the Pfizer vaccine early on like I did. So 88% effective at two weeks after the second dose against the Indian variant, 93% effective here in the UK against the UK variant. AstraZeneca still pretty good, but not quite so good at 60% against the Indian variant and 66% against the UK, the UK or Kent variant. What was really troubling and the reason why many of us have had to shift forwards our vaccine clinic plans leading to some like crazy amount of uh, vaccinations being done last weekend which was truly remarkable. 
once again, I feel a little bit ashamed that I had absolutely nothing to do with that. But I know that lots of you will have been intrinsically involved and my hat comes off to you. Anyway, the, the reason we've had to do that is because this paper shows only a 33% efficacy against symptomatic disease for the Indian variant three weeks after the first dose compared to 50% efficacy for the UK variant. So all of a sudden we've gone from one dose offering pretty good protection to actually the data suggesting that it's not great and it's really poor against this, this new variant. At least the government seems to have taken heed of the data and got on top of this. Unlike the car crash in the earlier stages as Dominic Cummings has been talking about today. So forwards comes those second doses, general practice springs into action and we make it happen. In fact, that reminds me, I forgot to say in the last podcast just how absolutely annoying it is watching the government take credit for the success of the vaccination programme. Somehow spun that this is the mastery of government leadership and capitalism at its best, when in fact we all know that this has been successful because of the hard work of general practice, from individuals within different practices, demonstrating their leadership skills to generate new services, to make it safe for patients, to show how effectively we can adapt and arguably show the potential benefits of a socialist health system. So it is absolutely galling. Nevertheless, our main priority is to make sure that our patients are safe and well served and we continue to do that. However, if we truly want to make sure that our patients are safe, we need to get our governments to start thinking outside of just the UK. Yes, we've been one of the best countries in the world at delivering the vaccine, but it is increasingly clear that no country stands alone and never were this more true than in this paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine last week. So this is looking at the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and its efficacy against the B135 variant. So that is the South African variant. And perhaps we had some idea about this before, but once again, this just confirms the research. And it basically says that it has almost no efficacy against the South African variant. So while rich country governments may pat themselves on the back for securing millions and millions and millions more vaccine doses than they really need to um, serve their population. The reality is if you want to open up your borders, then you have not eliminated the risk. We always knew that the virus would mutate, that it would change. It's still more likely that over time it will mutate into something that's less serious than it is now. But that's the end game. Right now, the mutations are likely to be more transmissible, may often make people more sick, and of course will evolve to evade the effects of vaccines. Until we can get the whole world vaccinated, there is always going to be a huge reservoir of mutating virus, and we will always be chasing our tails. And to give an example of that, this is another preprint study that's just been reported on uh, in the BMJ, data coming out of Brazil showing that one in six people who had already been infected with coronavirus were then reinfected with the P1 or Brazilian variant. Clearly, we have to hope that now that governments have started getting a bit more control over their national approach to COVID, 
maybe they can start thinking a bit more internationally as well. Ugh, I feel a bit like I'm all doom and gloom today. I really don't mean to be. So maybe let's have a think about something more positive. Long COVID. I know what you're thinking. Hard to be positive about long COVID, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but I've been somewhat surprised by how little long COVID I've been seeing in my patients. That's not to say it's not there, and it's not to say that it's not troubling, because it certainly is. I have patients who are still having problems, quite severe problems, from the very start of the pandemic, infected it the, uh, in that very first wave in the first few weeks that it reached the UK. So long COVID clearly is a problem, but I thought that we would be seeing this tsunami of cases in general practice, and that doesn't seem to be borne out in reality. Now, I am prepared to be corrected, so please do email me, hottopics at nbmedical.com, if you have found something very different in your practice, I'd be really interested to know. And I'm not sure if it's because patients with long COVID, by and large, have come to the conclusion that we can't do anything for them and they're just going to tough it out. Or if perhaps for the majority of people, negative symptoms don't last that long. Or if perhaps that some of the studies reporting about long COVID that can show enduring abnormalities in various organs when you do blood and radiology tests don't necessarily correlate very well with real world troubling symptoms. But there is this new paper in the BMJ, which is a retrospective cohort study of adults 18 to 65 in the US, comparing individuals who were infected with COVID last year against three different comparator groups. So one from last year who didn't have COVID, uh, a group from the year before, and then finally another historical comparator group who had been diagnosed with upper respiratory tract infection. They were looking at new diagnosis of COVID complications after the acute phase and so followed them up for around 200 days. They found that one in seven people who had had COVID were subsequently diagnosed with one or more new effects as a result of that COVID. That was 5% higher than the, the non-COVID comparator group, although interestingly only marginally by I think it was 1.6% higher than the virus, uh, upper respiratory tract virus comparator group. So perhaps we've been under-recognising longer-term complications of traditional illnesses. It also highlights some of the more unique complications with COVID, such as respiratory failure compared with other respiratory illnesses, but also some of the more common features. So cardiomyopathy seems to be about the same between COVID and other viruses. What can we take away from all of this? Well, plenty of people will have long COVID, whether they tell us or not. A surprising amount of people will develop new features even after the acute phase. And the linked editorial introduced me to a phrase that I'd not come across before, which is people describing this, these new symptoms that come after COVID as the corona coaster, which I think is quite a, quite a neat little term, more playful than the topic that it's actually trying to describe. But it also reminds us just to take a moment and appreciate that people with other infections also can have enduring symptoms 
things don't always get better, the body doesn't always recover, and we need to be mindful and supportive of that fact. Now, onto a piece of research in the New England Journal of Medicine that has its feet firmly in primary care. So this was looking at the role of grommets versus standard medical therapy in children with recurrent acute otitis media. And I was surprised as I was reading the article, because this is an American study, but apparently 667,000 children in the US underwent grommet insertion in 2006, which was the most recent year they had available data. That made me wonder, how many grommets do we insert every year in the UK? So a quick Google showed that in England, we have inserted 300,000 between 2000 and 2010. So in a 10 year period, we've done half the amount of grommet procedures as they've done in one year in the US, which is absolutely staggering in itself. Now, of course, the national guidance in the UK is that grommet insertions are really for hearing loss due to glue ear rather than prevention of acute otitis media. But the point of research is to challenge preconceptions. And so it made me wonder, is there a role for grommets in those children who do have recurrent otitis media? Is it worth them undergoing a surgical procedure to rid themselves of nasty recurrent infections? So they did a randomized controlled trial of children aged six to 35 months who had had at least three episodes of acute otitis media in the last six months or four in the last year, and they were randomized to either have grommet insertion or receive medical management, which usually involved episodic antimicrobial treatment. And I see in the, um, in the methods that they were giving them oral coamoxiclav. They compared the difference in rates of infection at two years and they found that whilst there did seem to be a few less episodes in the grommet group it wasn't a statistically significant finding. So the conclusions we can draw from this grommets don't prevent infections, medical management is just as good. We have another example of how America's health service incentivizes doctors to overtreat. And one may question whether most of these children actually needed antibiotics in the first place. Sometimes it's just nice to have a study that shows what you're doing is generally the right thing. And finally, a study in The Lancet. Now, this was looking at metabolic bariatric surgery and long-term survival in adults with and without diabetes. It is a meta-analysis with 175,000 participants. So they've got a lot of data in this group now. I'm very aware over the last few months, I've been talking a lot about things like um, liraglutide and related medications and their role for weight loss. On the Hot Topics course, we've been talking about the role of dietary modification for um, diabetes remission. And all of that's great, it's welcome to have options, but we shouldn't forget that bariatric surgery, that whilst it sounds like a major undertaking, remains an extremely good option for many of our patients. So bariatric surgery was associated with a 50% reduction in the risk of death. 
it improved someone's median life expectancy by six years. And the greatest benefits by far were seen in people who have diabetes. So then the median life expectancy went up to over nine years. And they had a numbers needed to treat to prevent one additional death over 10 years of just eight. Think about all those times you've been on the Hot Topics course and we've been trying to convince you that a numbers needed to treat of 100 is meaningful and important. Here we've got a numbers needed to treat of eight. Step aside all you new anti-glycemic agents. Even in those without diabetes, there's a numbers needed to treat of 30. So let's keep it on our list. If we've got someone who comes to see us and they're overweight, don't give up on that lifestyle chat. If they're a newly diagnosed diabetic, let's talk to them about the ability to get themselves into remission. And if they're struggling to do that in any other way, let's not forget bariatric surgery is a good option. That's enough from me. Time for me to stop talking so that I can start thinking about my holiday the next week. No, I'm not going to Portugal. I'm going to Pembrokeshire, but it's funny how our perspectives change and I'm rather looking forward to it. So I hope that you guys get time to have a little bit of break from your busy working schedules over the next few weeks. And if you do want to have a bit more of an update, then there's lots going on with MB at the moment. So coming up in June, we've got our diabetes course. We've got our mental health course. Both of those going out live. We've got more hot topics and urgent care courses coming up too. So do keep an eye on the website. The webinars are going better than we ever imagined that they would do at the start of this pandemic. Don't forget to have a look at NB Plus where you can get all of our content, all of our courses for the year for just over £300 or 30 quid a month. It really is a genuine bargain. Feel free to get in touch. So email on hottopics at mbmedical.com at GP Hot Topics on Twitter and check us out on Facebook as well. And I will be back in probably three weeks. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.